Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Kai Bond, partner at Courtside Ventures. How's it going, Kai? What's up, man? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining me. So to kick things off, you know, for those who don't know you, you know, I would love to just dive into your professional background and the path you took to get to where you are today. Sure. Happy to, to go through that. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, I'm a partner at Courtside Ventures. I've been here for two years, you know, currently deploying capital out of fund two. Courtside is an early stage fund. We focus on pre-seed through series A, and we invest in three verticals, sports uh, as one, fitness, health, and wellness as a second, and then gaming as a third bucket. I lead all the gaming investments here. Um, you know, my background, I started off at Microsoft working in mobile and messaging and then quickly got into mobile gaming and kind of saw what was going on with Xbox and, and you know, XBLA. And so I joined a, another gaming startup here in New York. I moved back from Seattle to join Oberon Media and, um, you know, was working on casual game publishing platform and kind of mobile casual gaming early way back in the brew and J2ME days. Um, when you still had to download, you know, games off of a carrier WAP deck. And so, you know, from there, you know, I decided to launch a couple of my own startups. I had a, a gaming startup called Switch Games, which was a peer-to-peer -peer community where you could uh, buy, sell, and trade games at fair market value. You know, we were going after that $5 billion that GameStop has and mm -hmm. used, uh, used game sales. Started a second company called Cash Play Games, um, which were chance-based casino games like slots, dice, and roulette paired with a sweepstakes engine uh, to allow people to, uh, to win real cash and prizes while playing. And, you know, the, the whole vision there was the passport reform was going to come soon. And we were trying to amass a large audience um, of gamers who we would then be able to turn into to real wagering. You know, we were about eight years too early with that <laughs> endeavor. So when you miss time to market, you already know what happens. Right. But, um, you know, always love the real money gaming space. I then decided to, to launch a third startup called Pixie TV. It was an interactive streaming platform um, to provide, you know, contextually relevant and custom content on broadcast TV. So you could get your Twitter feed on television, you could get your fantasy sports, you know, and whatever content you wanted to, to watch with while you're watching live television. Uh, that was acquired by Samsung. I spent a year building that product out globally. It's called Samsung Extra now. It's on about 60 million smart TVs. Mm. And, you know, I was, I was just trying to figure out, you know, how am I gonna, what am I going to do for my fourth startup, right? Like I finally did my third startup, had some success, you know, got, feel like I had mastered my craft after, you know, eight or nine years as a CEO, you know, I went from a good entrepreneur to becoming a good CEO. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about the fourth company and I just didn't, you know, I never landed on anything. I didn't have that passion or that fire in me to build a product. And at the same time, you know, one of the guys who had invested in a couple of my businesses called me up. He was at Comcast Ventures at the time and said, look, we have this fund called Catalyst Fund. You know, it's a $20 million fund focused exclusively on Black and Latinx founders. You know, we would love for you to come in and lead that. And at the same time, you know, Comcast was seeing this trend with their network traffic that, you know, they were doubling month over month and all that traffic was coming from gaming. And so they were like, well, mm -hmm. we're, we're the pipes for all of this, but we're not spending a lot of time in gaming. 
and they were starting to get real serious around gaming at the time at Comcast. So, you know, on the venture side, I started deploying capital, you know, they built out universal games um, and that publishing team. And so, you know, I ended up doing, you know, four deals there with the team at Courtside and that they were investing out of fund one. And, you know, I started exploring the opportunity to come over here and join as a partner Spent about nine months, you know, dating. I had known the team here for a while, mm-hmm. just through the startup ecosystem in New York. And then again, even more specifically around Pixie, given the focus on sports. And they were one of the few funds that really liked and focused on sports. So we started co-investing. We had a good, you know, good rapport. I always loved how, you know, they worked hard for the founders and they, they really added value to every deal they came in on and were nose to the grindstone, good operators, you know, former entrepreneurs. And so the, the chemistry was right. And then, you know, when looking at fund one, the returns were good. And, you know, they had a playbook set up that at the time, not a lot of people were going after in these other categories that had, you know, traditionally been overlooked by venture. And, you know, it was uncertain if venture returns could come from these, these verticals we were operating in. And so, you know, I came and jumped ship. I've been here. And, and so, you know, we, we raised a $54 million fund too. And, you know, we've now, you know, invested in, you know, 25 companies out of fund two with the seed in series A, mm-hmm. and it's been a great ride for the last couple of years. So that's, that's my journey here. Awesome. So a ton to dive into there. Uh, you know, thanks for all the background. You know, one thing I wanted to dive into is just, you know, you spent time at Comcast Ventures before switching over to Portside. And so what are some of the differences between just the way, you know, you're, you were investing for a corporate VC versus how you think about investing today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different layers to the differences of a corporate VC and what we do here at Courtside. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest like shock to the system when I first came on board was like, okay, I thought that after three years of investing, I'd become a decent investor, mm-hmm. right? And, and then and that's one thing, right? Sourcing deals, picking deals and helping your founders out you know, after the investment is one side of venture, right? Right. The other side that I was, you know, ill-equipped for and unprepared for, you know, was fundraising, right? A big part of this game is raising money for you, Mm -hmm. right? In relationships with family offices, endowments, you know, institutional LPs, universities, you know, the same way I say, you know, early in my career, I was a good entrepreneur, but I wasn't a good CEO. Mm -hmm. You know, when I came here, I believe, and hopefully the track record will play this out, that I'm a good investor, but being a good venture capitalist is a different ballgame. So that was probably the the biggest stark contrast personally from a career development perspective that I had to, you know, spend a lot of cycles improving on and, and, and growing, you know, but as it pertains to, you know, the investment side of deploying capital, you know, I think there's two big elements here. You know, one is the speed at which we can get deals done, Mm -hmm. right? We are a three-person partnership. If we find a good deal that we like and they pitch us, you know, we had this happen three weeks ago. You know, we we had a founder pitch us at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. It ended at 10. We voted on the deal. We agreed we wanted to do it. You know, I got on the phone with the lawyers at 10. We drafted a term sheet. We had it to them by 1130. We started the negotiation. You know, we're trying to close that within 48 to 72 hours, right? That term sheet and then go into long form diligence. And so, you know, speed 
in this market is essential when you have larger funds coming down and, and entering in at new points at the seed and the A where historically they've been waiting a little bit longer. And then I think the second component is just really staged. Like I was focused on seed investing, you know, at, at Comcast, but the vast majority of capital was going in, you know, in the late, in later stage deals where we could be very strategic, right. And, you know, trying to win deals at an emerging fund, right. You've built a name. We've had some good deals. Mm -hmm. We've had, you know, some exits under our belt, but you're still establishing yourself, you know, against these name brands. And so when you walk into a room or, you know, a meeting as a Comcast, people know what they're going to get. They know the strategic value of a corporate can bring. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you are, you know, operating out of, a, you know, an early stage fund, you know, you really have to, to show and prove to a founder to win that deal that you're the best partner and why, right? Mm -hmm. And so we spend a lot of time grinding real hard for our companies and see ourselves as a partner in these businesses, right? As former entrepreneurs, you know, we've had successful exits, we think that we bring a lot to the table that's unique value add at the early stages that other people won't pay attention to. And so that's, you know, some of, some of the key differences between corporate and, and uh, where, where I am today at, at Courtside. Mm -hmm. And a lot of VCs say that fundraising is one of the more difficult parts of the job, right? And so now that you've raised your second fund, why is it actually so difficult to convince people to give you money to invest? And then number two, has it gotten easier for you guys now that you have a bit more of a track record under your belt? Or would you still say it's a huge grind uh, to raise funds? You know, when you look at, you know, LPs who have the opportunity to invest in a multitude of asset classes, you know, they're looking at how they take their capital and put it in real estate, you know, fixed income, equity, you know, private PE hedge funds. And you look at, you know, their PE bucket and venture falls into that mm -hmm. PE bucket and you have funds with long established track records of cash on cash returns. Um, so as an emerging manager, being able to paint the picture of why the 5 million, you know, that they're going to give you or 10 million is going to be better spent than the 50 that they're going to give to a more established player yeah. in the market. You know, you have to have a real investment thesis and a strategy. And so you know, the categories we operate in oftentimes take a lot of education, right? It's not SaaS that they've seen for a long time. It's not, you know, pharma or biotech, right? These are categories traditionally they haven't put capital behind. So mm -hmm. not only is it hard for them to get them to open up the wallets, there's an education component. It's also, you know, they're managing billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time it's, you know, can I put 50 million to work and 2X that in a late stage fund, and get back another 50 on top, or do I take, you know, my five and hope it becomes 20, right. you know, they're moving, you know, weight, right? And so that's what they want to do. And, and cash on cash returns is, is how they make a name for themselves. And so, you know, they have allocations for what they consider emerging managers, usually funds under $250 million, mm -hmm. but, you know, they don't have an urgency to deploy capital, right? Like there's, they're thinking a hundred years out, how do I, make sure that this, this pension fund has capital in a hundred years. And so, you know, you're trying to paint a picture of why you can accelerate their capital and why, you know, we as a fund are focused on these emerging areas that they need to be in because it will be the future of media, entertainment, social networks, community. And, you know, those relationships, you know, if your fund cycle is two or three years and you're sending quarterly updates, and you have a meeting with somebody, by the time you do a first close and you start fundraising for your, your next fund, 
you might only send them six or eight emails, right? Mm-hmm. right? And you might be in their city, you know, you know, two or three times a year and hope that you can get on their calendar. Yeah. And so, you know, building those relationships can take years to, you know, in, in, to, to establish the trust and confidence that one, your investment thesis is working and two, that as a partnership, you will work well together. And, you know, they don't want to rotate managers out. A lot of these folks want to stay with, you know, a fund for two, three, four uh, fund cycles. And so they can wait. They can wait until fund three or four or five. Right, right? Right. They don't need to come in on fund one or fund two oftentimes. So, you know, we spent a lot of time fostering those relationships, you know, educating people in the market, you know, having them understand why this intersection of sports and gaming is a unique angle where there's, you know, billions of dollars of upside to be, you know, to be had by startups. And so it's it's been a a learning experience, but I'm more and more bullish that people are starting to recognize now, you know, I grew up in a generation, I'm 42. <laughs> my parents' generation never played video games. Right. Right? I grew up playing games. So when I see my son playing, it's it's natural. And, and they see their kids playing games constantly. And they're like, oh, okay. I, and they see how much money they're spending on them. And I, I think that the, the, the receptiveness to understanding the business side of gaming and sports, not just the entertainment value hits home now, right? Because it's in their living room. It's in their kid's pocket in the car. And, and, and they know that there, there needs to be a capital allocation towards these segments of the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point that you brought up just about, you know, how your generation and, and my generation have, we grew up playing games, right? And even so, though, you know, when we were younger, it was still, you know, pretty stigmatized right like I wasn't a huge gamer you know but I wasn't like you know talking to all my friends at school about like how much I'm playing video games and all that stuff whereas now um it's extremely mainstream you know so things have just changed completely you know but to that point I would love to just dive into how you actually got into gaming right so are you a gamer today what are some of the games that sort of you grew up playing that you alluded to before yeah so I grew up you know early days you know Mario Kart Excite bike, you know. I love my Nintendo, and and you know from there I, I got onto Sega. I, I was always a big sport, you know. I, I was an athlete, so I played mm-hmm. sports, so I naturally gravitated towards you know sports games, and you know so NBA Live was my joint, you yeah. know, back in the day, and I always played a ton of of FIFA and Madden, you know, and then as as you know gaming kind of you know evolved into immersive storytelling and better graphics, you know, and, and, and obviously when I was at Microsoft, you know, I see you got the Halo, mm-hmm. you know, joint in the background, you know, you couldn't, couldn't not play Halo working at Microsoft right. in the early 2000s. And, you know, now I, I still game today, you know, I, I play FIFA, I play Call of Duty. Those mm-hmm. are my two go-to games, you know, that I try to, to you know, master and, and feel like I'm good at so I can, <laughs> I can talk my, my shit, and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and be competitive in them. Yeah. But uh, I feel like, you know, the beauty of gaming is that it's such a broad category now. Like, I remember playing, you know, HQ trivia, mm-hmm. you know, during Thanksgiving with my entire family answering questions, right? And, you know, everyone from 13 to 60 in a room you know, playing this game. And, yeah. and, you know, is that a game? Was it, you know, was it a, a, a media platform? And so, you know, and I think the same is happening. Like now, you know, spending a lot of time, I was, you know, a fantasy player, obviously, 
you know, growing up and, and you know, playing a lot of Yahoo, you know, leagues and, yeah. and then evolving into now what is, you know, gambling, right, and wagering. Mm-hmm. And in New York, it's just about to, to issue the sports licenses. You know, when I pop into Jersey uh, across the bridge, you know, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll play some bets down. And yeah. so, you know, it, it, it certainly has evolved into what I would consider kind of like core time in front of the, the console with, you know, snack bite content along the way to keep me entertained during the day. Got it. So, you know, you mentioned the competitive side of gaming. You know, for me, as you said, I was a huge Halo player growing up. Always have been more of a competitive uh, gamer than a casual gamer. You know, I was an okay athlete, but not like a sick athlete. Uh, You know, but gaming was was where I could really, you know, scratch that, that sort of competitive itch, right? And so as you see sports and gaming just continue to converge what are some areas that you think could lead to interesting investments you know based on this uh this theme yeah so i think you know from our end around competitive gaming we looked at esports a lot in fund one Mm -hmm. and you know we always were drawn towards the media the culture the lifestyle around gaming so Mm -hmm. you know we invested in, in 100 thieves Mm -hmm. um at the seed and you know i I think what people underestimate around gaming is kind of like the cultural aspect around Mm -hmm. it right you know cats who play 2k or madden competitively you know we were doing that in in dorm rooms in college right right? like you know i'm gonna bet you five dollars like you know who's gonna run to the store like (laughs) you know small wagers to keep it competitive and keep it interesting right and and I think, you know, what we'll see is, you know, we're, we're investors in Players Lounge, you know, mm-hmm. as is uh, the, the team at Griffin. And, yep. you know, to us, we look at that as the new poker night, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you might not get together and it's not about winning large sums of money, but you're finding your friends, you're getting together in a social experience and putting, you know, $5 down as a mm-hmm. wager on a game has additional skin in the game right now that's competitive but it's never with the you know intention that you're going to become a pro game right, right? right so mm-hmm. i can say that's competitive gaming you know is that an esport though and and so there will always be top and elite you know athletes that want to compete in gaming mm-hmm. but when you look at the sports market the u.s you know the youth sports market is 17 billion dollars Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people who are participating in that youth ecosystem are not going pro, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're starting to see is that maturation and, and, and you know, evolution of that kind of broad-based acceptance of what is a core casual gamer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, play versus is, is, you know, what I would put in that bucket, right? Where people are playing after school for fun and entertainment and in a competitive league, but it's not always with the intent that like, I'm going to get so good. I'm going to go pro. Like right. I played soccer in high school. I played baseball, but I was like, I damn sure I'm not going to walk on a D one team. And I know yeah. I'm not going to go pro, but it was the camaraderie mm-hmm. it was the activity. It was the engagement that I had fun doing. And, you know, I think we're going to see that part of the market, not just the high end elite competitive yeah. teams, but the broad based market really expand in new ways that we, we haven't envisioned in the past. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 100 Thieves. Uh, you know, as I said before, I was a pretty uh, competitive Halo player. I actually used to play with one of the guys over at 100 Thieves, uh, Jack Dunlop or Courage, mm-hmm. he goes by yep. all the time, right? And 
the way that gaming has evolved, you know, from a cultural standpoint, as you alluded to, you know, I think most people probably would not have envisioned this, you know, even as recently as maybe 10 years ago, right? But, you know, certainly not much earlier than that, right? And so 100 Thieves has actually been leaning more into like fashion and some of these other things that aren't really gaming related, right? But they're like lifestyle and, and branding sorts of, of themes. Uh, what do you think about, and it doesn't have to be about 100 Thieves specifically, right? But what do you think about that specifically, just like gamers and gaming increasingly gaining sort of mainstream mindshare and, and just defining the culture generally? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting symbiotic relationship with big brands, right? Mm -hmm. Because historically, they're going to advertise in a magazine or on TV. And those are channels that, you know, this generation growing up is not paying attention to, mm -hmm. right? And that's not where the dollars they're spending are going. And so the brands need to, to figure out how to capture the hearts and minds of, of a new generation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when you look at, you know, 100 Thieves or you look at FaZe, right? And you look at any of these, you know, larger entities that are tapping into the brand power that they bring, you know, their lifestyle and entertainment and media mm -hmm. experiences, right? Like, you know, my parents used to get home and turn on the TV, right? And it would be like, okay, TV's on and, you know, I'm kind of watching the the, the six o'clock news and then it rolls into Jeopardy mm -hmm. or, you know, Wheel of Fortune. And, and then you have your, you know, your eight o'clock slot and you're watching a primetime show. You see this with the audio revolution. It's like, all right, I'm gonna come home and throw on my Sonos. I'm gonna have my podcast on. I'm gonna have my music on. Mm -hmm. And for this generation, it's like, I'm gonna come in, turn on my screen, you turn boot up my PC, yeah. you know, and and you know, tune in to who's streaming, right? Mm -hmm. And it's entertainment. And so I think, you know, the the collaborations make a lot of sense from the brands who want to reach this audience. And I think the way to monetize, you know, and 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 engage with this audience is going to be different than than other models that have worked in the past for mm -hmm. online, right? And I think the big question around it is when you look at a lot of the UGC platforms out there. You know, you look at Instagram as a, as a social network, like it was fantastic, but it never monetized its scale until it was acquired by Facebook, right? right? YouTube, incredible engagement, never monetized in the way that it did until it was acquired by Google. And so for a lot of these up and coming brands, you know, recognizing that despite the audience, the prior web 1.0 monetization model isn't what's going to work for them was something they recognized early on, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think it gives me hope that, you know, the industry as a whole will become a bigger, a bigger pie. And we're starting to see that. But, you know, there's still a lot of growth left. Anytime there's eyeballs and engagement, they'll figure out a way to monetize over time. Right. And we're still going through some of those growing pains, mm -hmm. you know, as an industry around esports. But I, I'm, I'm confident that we'll get there and, and that there'll be scalable businesses to generate real top line revenue and have good unit economics, but we're in, you know, we're in the early innings here. And so, right. you know, we're playing the long game around what this means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, following up on that, right. Because one of the bear cases on sort of esports investments and investments in organizations has been, you know, Hey, they get a lot of viewers and they get a lot of mindshare, but the monetization hasn't quite been figured out yet, right? So if you yep. were to sort of just guess, you know, sort of how this plays out, how do you see the monetization side of things evolving going forward? Yeah, man, I think, look, as a, as a, as a brand, right, I think if you look at, you know, what 100 Thieves is doing, mm -hmm. 
you know, with merch and the drops that they've done, you know, the, the, the Gucci drop and, you know, you've done stuff, they've done stuff in the past with Nike, you know, people have asked this question around, you know, Supreme, right. Early on, Mm -hmm. it's like, they don't make the sneakers. Like, you know, what, why, why are they such a big business? Why is it so great? Right. Like, you know, they have a collabo with this company or this company and this brand, but, you know, being the purveyor of what is cool and influential is almost priceless, right? Mm-hmm. So the dollars will come. Right. Um, you know, am I going to give away my, the special sauce on this? <laughs> no, nah, man, come on. <laughs> yes, uh, but, you know, I, I think you'll look at them more as diversified yeah. media and holding companies mm-hmm. as well as esports teams. And that will be the key to success over time. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and then, you know, earlier you you mentioned, you know, your time at, at Cash Play Games and how yeah. it may have been a bit too early. You know, but today you see lots and lots of startups within gaming trying to think of new unique ways to reward gamers right and so how has this landscape evolved you know sort of since since your cash play days and do you think these are attractive business models today and companies that merit uh, investment attention yeah absolutely so i'm bullish on the cash gaming Mm -hmm. you know ecosystem overall there's so many different components to it that are misunderstood Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a fund, and particularly because we focus on sports, right, you've got daily fantasy, right, as a skill-based game around sports. You have, you know, skills as a company that focuses on skill-based casual gaming. Mm -hmm. You've got your players' lounges that focused on console. You've got online casino, right? You've got head-to-head, you know, versus a game as as a platform that's Mm -hmm. emerging. And when you look at it, you know, it's funny to me that there's this stigma around, you know, gambling and real money in the US, you know, the lotto ecosystem in the US, you know, including scratch cards and the big, it's a $90 billion a year industry, yeah. right? It's provided billions of dollars to mm-hmm. counselors and CalPERS in California that are mm-hmm. deploying, you know, over time to support the pension fund. And so I think that that $90 billion pool, this next generation of users is not walking into a bodega, buying a scratch card yeah. or going into a 7-Eleven and playing mega. Now, you'll always have the big cash prizes, but the realization that, you know, there are economies that are being built, right, around engaging fun content where there's real money involved is great. Like We used to cut people in a percentage of the revenue from the advertisers. They didn't know where the money was coming from, mm-hmm. nor did they care, nor should they care, Right. And I think what you're seeing is the transition into a phase where individuals understand and have a, a really strong grasp of how the economies are working. And I think, you know, Axie Infinity is a perfect example of mm-hmm. this, right? Where you're seeing entire ecosystems being built, right? You know, a, around creator economies. And now not only can you participate in UGC in the creator economy, but the value of what you're contributing back into the ecosystem is raising the value of everyone who's participating, right? You know, I could see a global lotto system, you know, built out, uh, you know, in crypto, in NFTs Mm -hmm. that, you know, surpasses the size of anything that we've seen, you know, in the US or the UK to date. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to unlock value here where I just don't think the existing games that are being played in the traditional sense where a lot of the money was going are as compelling as what you can do, you know, in the video game industry. Right. And so I think, 
you know, look, you, you look at the data and the stats around what's going to happen in real money gaming, it's going to increase exponentially. They're going to be category defining companies that are invested in. There are models that will pop up in the U.S. that apply to other markets. There's other markets that are creating and in inventing that will end up here in the U.S. And, you know, we're going to see a seven to 10 year run, particularly as the regulatory environment unlocks. You know, in the U.S., you talk about this stuff going, you know, state by state. Mm -hmm. The licenses are being issued by the state. It's not, man you know, regulated by the federal government. And so there will be a little bit longer of a time to unlock some of that value. And that's why we focus a lot on skill-based gaming until the regulatory market is played out. But, you know, this is, this is early days and in, in we're seeing a shift in user behavior and an understanding that will continue to accelerate the industry exponentially in the next few years. Right. So you mentioned uh, Axie Infinity and NFTs. Uh, obviously, I have to <laughs> dive in deeper there, you know, just given all the attention that they get. Right. And so, yep. you know, one, you know, generally, what do you think about NFTs? You know, you, you started to get into it. Why is gaming specifically so well positioned to capitalize on the growth of NFTs? And then just generally, are NFTs hype or do you think there's actually some some legitimacy here and some legit yeah. uh, business cases long term? I mean, at the end of the day, they have to be legit if there's mm -hmm. this much money flowing into the ecosystem. So whether or not you believe it, right? we've seen early versions of this. Right? I mean, CryptoKitties was yeah. you know a breakout hit, right? And maybe the mechanic behind the game we've seen in the past through you know free to play online makes it difficult to sustain the life cycle past seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. So what you've seen is, you know, better and better gameplay, right, going on around the NFT ecosystem. So, you know, you look at a company like SoRare, mm -hmm. and so I think they're a great example, right, where you have the collectible component, right? Like, there's value in NFTs, you know, we're investors in StockX out of Fund 1, right? Mm -hmm. And people will laugh at sneaker collectors, you know, and be like, oh, that's dumb. Who's going to pay $300 for right. a pair of kicks, right? But, you know people buy shoes as collectible items and they buy them to wear them as mm -hmm. well, right? People, you don't need a watch. You know, you've got a, a mobile phone right. on you 24 seven to tell time accurately, mm -hmm. but that's why you've seen a boom in watches, right? And so I do think that it, it, even if you talk about digital items in games, right? You know, the skin that you buy that's the limited edition mm -hmm. NFL jersey in Fortnite has inherent value because that's your social network and that's your personal brand and your identity, right? To other people in the game. And so when you talk about the power of, you know, NFTs, I think we're seeing very clearly early collectors, right? Coming mm -hmm. in and, and claiming a stake and that will be a part of the market. Now, where you'll see real value in the NFT ecosystem is around utilitarian value, yeah. right? and around engagement and fun. The blockchain is inherently good for creators, right? As they structure smart contracts, if you're selling something and you can continue to get a piece of the used sales for year on year, like, of course, why wouldn't you? And people have spent money in games for years and now they're seeing a portion of the value that they've participated in flow back into the mm -hmm. game and, and accrue in value for them. And so I do believe that there's a long-term play. Is there a lot of hype? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is there real money flowing through the ecosystem though at a very early stage? Yes. And I think that's what gets people excited that sometimes these 
phenomenon that happened in, in you know, kind of this lightning in a bottle, there's engagement and traction without monetization. But here you actually have real money flowing through right. and you have real economies being built at scale. And anytime you get the two of those things at the same moment in time, you know, obviously, you know, piques everybody's interest. Mm -hmm. So hype, yes, real <laughs> value over time, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, you know, up to investors to identify the right founders who have a vision of why the unique value of an NFT, a collectible, an asset, and how that, you know, creates a more engaging, compelling gameplay that's what our job is, right? I, I can't tell you what's going to be the next big thing because, you know, I'd go out and build the thing. Right, you know, right. I'd build that product. But, you know, we have our, our, our eyes, and you know, open and, and are looking for the founders that have unique perspective and insights into why their strategy will work, right? And I think the great hope around NFTs for me in the gaming ecosystem is that, you know, when you look at it today, and, you know, there's a lot of hype around the metaverse, you know, each one of these are very siloed companies, right? Like what you're doing in Niantic and Pokemon Go mm -hmm. is a totally different world than Fortnite and Roblox. And, you know, what can I do to take my assets that I care about, that I love, and that represents my identity to a large extent across these various platforms? Mm -hmm. right? And, and the, the promise of blockchain is always decentralization. And can the power shift move, you know, back to the consumer? Um, and who's going to own that, right? Facebook became powerful because of the social graph. And I can see a company becoming very big in the stuff graph or the things right. graph, my collectibles graph. Because back in the day when you used to go to someone's crib, and I know that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> in the times that we're in, and I'm old, but like, you know, you would go in and be like, oh, this is your CD collection. Right? Yeah. You get a read on so, somebody. Else. These are the books that you're reading. Oh, cool. This is the art you've collected. And you start to, you know, figure out how you can have a conversation. People have, you know, coffee table books about things they like and travels they've had. And I think that, you know, if you truly believe in the metaverse, which I do, and you believe that it's a social experience where people are going to share, then obviously these things that they're collecting and the items that they own inside of the virtual world are going to be very important to them. Mm -hmm. And so we focus on that value. And the hope I think is that you know, you unlock even more value across multiple games and experiences where you're just not locked into one ecosystem. And that's where the real value and power comes from our perspective. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Gamers have been spending tens of billions of dollars on digital assets that quote unquote don't have any value anyways, right? So if you can spend the same amount of money and actually own the asset, you know, it's very clear and why as a gamer, there's going to be a lot of interest there. Yeah. So, you know, now shifting sort of to a bit of a, a heavier topic, you know, but one that, you know, definitely deserves a lot of attention. You know, you've written and spoken a lot just about the diversity issues in sort of the tech and NBC ecosystem, right? And so generally, what are your thoughts on sort of the current state of diversity in VC and tech? And how have things improved, if at all, you know, throughout your career and, and your time in the ecosystem? Yeah, on my end, like I started raising money in 2006, right, mm -hmm. for, for a company. There, there were no 
initiatives around diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still a time where nobody was blogging about what they were investing in, and there was there's limited transparency into funds. And that's opened up and changed a bit, not a lot, but a mm-hmm. bit. And access is still hard. But you know, we have come a long way, you know, in terms of looking at entrepreneurs, black and Latinx, underrepresented entrepreneurs who've had some success. You've seen, you know, the rise of black venture funds come into the ecosystem, mm-hmm. some with a diversity focus, some without a diversity focus. Even those without a diversity focus tend to do a better job of sourcing and investing in diverse founders. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've come a long way. You know, I had a dinner in New York a few years ago, I want to say about two and a half years ago, with all of the black check writers in New mm-hmm. York. And there were six people at the table. Wow. Right. And it was tiny. And, and if you look at the AUM, it was de minimis mm-hmm. relative to the overall ecosystem. And so, you know, that's changing, mm-hmm. but there's still not enough capital, you know, in the ecosystem from Black and Latinx founders to dent the VC ecosystem. So you've seen LP step up, you've seen corporations do this, you know, after, you know, the George Floyd and the Black Lives Movement sort mm-hmm. of brought this issue to the forefront, you know, for a lot of America that was not in tune with what was going on. The big question there is how how sustainable is that, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's institutional LPs who are out constantly raising funds to dedicate to this. So like I applaud a $100 million effort and initiative to invest in Black, you know, GPs who are deploying capital. But the reality is that's probably 10 funds if you're doing meaningful right. checks, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not enough capital to go around. And you've seen institutional LPs carve out pockets of capital for emerging managers and diversity initiatives. So that's positive. I think where we're still seeing the biggest challenge is around representation at big funds where there aren't black check writers Mm -hmm. at tier one or established funds. And so that's disheartening because I think you need diverse perspectives at the partnership level of big funds who can write bigger checks and deploy more capital into the ecosystem, because it shouldn't only be the responsibility of Black GPs to invest in Black founders, right? You know, we we invested in fund two, we just did the numbers the other day, 40% of our investments are in underrepresented founders. Mm -hmm. And that includes Black, Latinx, people of color, and female, right? So we think we punch above our weight in Mm -hmm. terms of the industry, but it's not an explicit focus of ours, right? We focus on sports, in game. Mm-hmm. And so from, from our perspective, like we want to get those individuals we back into the same tier one VCs that back all of our other companies. Right. It's no different to us. And so it's a slow process, unfortunately, because that's the way the world works when you're talking about shifting and allocating billions of dollars. So you're kind of pushing a boulder uphill and then you get to the top and then you realize there's another peak, you know, that you yeah. have to work on. Right. Um, so I'm happy with the progress that we've made and colleagues and friends and co-investors in the industry. I want to make sure that that momentum continues. I think one of my biggest concerns, and we saw this, you know, after the Me Too movement, is that you saw a lot of hype and energy around funds allocating capital to females. 
and you saw female partners, you know, being called up and, and having check writing ability at larger funds. And you saw a lot of the female founded funds getting capital. But if you saw the recent numbers, it's dipped down again, yeah. right? And so how sustainable is this? Is it a flash in the pan? Or are we going to be able to continue to, to make strides? And I think it's going to take a really concerted effort by the rest of the venture ecosystem, mm-hmm. not just the Black and Latinx GPs who are deploying capital. Right. And then just following up, you don't hear this quite as often, right? But for a while, there was the argument that, you know, you have to sort of, quote unquote, balance, you know, investing in underrepresented founders, you know, versus the returns you can get just from the market in general. Uh, What do you say to this sort of line of thinking? So it's funny, because when I was at Catalyst Fund, you know, I would bring deals to the table, we had our own pool of capital, but success Mm -hmm. to me was always being able to get the flagship fund to deploy capital, yeah. right, into those deals that we did at the seed and mm-hmm. get them in at the series A and the series B. And we did that w- with some success, but I remember specifically we did a direct consumer deal in the African American kind of care and beauty space and nobody got it, right? But we were, you know, we were investors in, in, in Madison Reed, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is the exact same thing. like but this just happens to focus on a different right. section of the market. But like, because you don't know about curly hair yeah. and you don't know about, you know, these other areas, like the pattern matching is off because yep. nobody at your kitchen table or at the dining room or in your personal chat is talking about, it. they're talking about hair straightening, right? They're yeah. like dry bars. Like this is the thing, go and get your hair straight. And it's like, no, there's a, a consumer market out here spending billions of dollars on products that do the opposite. Right. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. we could own the whole gamut. Right. And so I think, a big part of it is, is and this is challenging, we face it with gaming as well, is mm-hmm. that there's an educational component that goes on with every investment. And people want to invest in things they feel comfortable and know about, yeah. right? So, you know, I think what we're, we're seeing is this transition from, I was a Black D2C brand, or I was, you know, uh, you know, a Latinx brand focused on, you know, this segment to, you know, somebody coming at me like I worked at Google and I was on, you know, a team and now I'm creating an AI startup. And it's just like any other AI software startup mm-hmm. out there. Right. Or, you know, it's, it's, you know, no different than any other investment that you're bringing to the table. So there's, you know, I, I think, and I always go back to the point that, you know, when you look at something like the PayPal mafia, mm-hmm. you know, who's responsible for seeding and, basically doing the friends and family round for hundreds of deals of people in their network because of the, you know, history and lack of, of capital available to African-Americans in this country, you don't have friends and family money, right? There is no institutional wealth that has been developed. So there is no friends and family. So we are going to need a multi-billion dollar outcome Mm -hmm. with, Black and Latinx founders who are willing to cut those seed checks and for those founders to be successful and for them. And right, that effect builds up a track record of success. And then you kind of, you know, continue to push your way up to access to larger capital pools. So there's a lot of work to be done, right? And and there's no easy solution to it. But the reality is there isn't a lack of good deals. There isn't a lack of talent. That's an easy out for people what they're either not comfortable with is extending beyond their network to identify great deals 
or a lack of understanding of what those founders bring to the market and the unique perspective, which betting against the grain is exactly what you do in venture that Mm -hmm. gives you outsized returns. Mm -hmm. And so when people start seeing what the returns are going to look like from these funds, then there's no way to ignore it. right? Right. And that's when you'll kind of make sure that you get that increase of capital at all levels from LPs, GPs, all the way down to the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And we need, we need that capital at all levels of of the stack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. So just to close things out, you know, you've been all over this, this uh, tech and VC ecosystem as a founder an operator an investor, but you're, you're still a young guy. So going forward, you know, what are some of the things that you want to accomplish that you have yet to do so far? I mean, shit, where do I start? <laughs> you know, I think professionally, you know, I've had some good investments, you know, obviously everybody wants to invest in unicorn. Everybody wants Mm -hmm. to get a a company taken public, right? At the end of the day, we're in a business where returning cash to our LPs is Mm -hmm. key, right? So I think there's a lot of things professionally still to accomplish. I think, you know, personally, venture is an art and a craft as much as it is a science, Mm -hmm. right? And you know, when I always talk to founders and CEOs that I work with and coach, and I'm like, what's your hobby? What are you good at? Do you play music, musical instrument? Do you, are you an athlete? You know, are you a dancer? Like what, what's the thing that, that drives you? And, you know, if you play sports, like when you, when you start, you suck at everything. Like, yeah. You're just not good. Like <laughs> there's no way to start being great. So like, you know, there's only so many Bo Jacksons in the world. Right. right? right. And so, you know, I want to continue to, to refine my craft, right? And get better as, as an investor. And that includes everything from fundraising to picking to mentoring and coaching companies. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, personally, it's just like, you know, my son's five, like I'm still learning, you know, what it's like to be a good father, mm-hmm. right? And, and kind of, you know, figure out that balance for years. I was just so focused only on work and grinding, and, yeah. you know, you understand a bigger perspective of what it means to balance all these things out professionally, personally. And so, you know, for me, those are the areas that I focus on kind of continuing to try to improve and get better on. Mm-hmm. All right, Kai, thanks for taking the time. I will be rooting for you and, and following your success as you continue to accomplish uh, some of these goals that you've laid out. But thanks again for joining me. Appreciate it, man. Always a pleasure.